Performance Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Greetings and welcome to this episode of the Payments Podcast. My name is John Gaffney. I'll be your host for this episode where the focus will be on occupational fraud. Now, whether you call it insider fraud, insider threats, or as our two guests from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners refer to it, occupational fraud, the problem of data and financial theft and manipulation from internal bad actors is arguably the most concerning area of fraud detection and defense these days. According to Bottom Line's 2023 Business Payments Barometer, 72% of all U.S. respondents and 59% of all Great Britain's respondents express concern about the increase in insider threats. According to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, report to the nations from 2022, which covered more than 2,000 cases of fraud from more than over 133 countries, an average of 5% of revenues lost to fraud every year, with an average loss per case of 1.8 million. So unless you find these numbers acceptable, please stay tuned to hear what our guests have to say in this episode. And if the perpetrators of occupational fraud are the bad guys, we have assembled two of the good guys. Here to discuss some of the issues are two special guests from the ACFE. First, I'd like to introduce Andy McNeil, who is the Vice President of Education for the ACFE, where she oversees all the organization's educational and training content, benchmarking research reports, and professional publications. She is a frequent speaker on the anti-fraud and leadership topics and has authored numerous articles for publications like the Journal of Accountancy, CPA Journal, and Fraud Magazine. All right, welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, and joining Andy today is the president of the ACFE, John Gill. In addition to that prestigious post, he also serves as an advisory member to the ACFE Board of Regents. John began his career at the ACFE in 1995 as its first general counsel. He then created and was the first director of the ACFE's Research and Publications Department. Welcome, John. Good to be here. Thanks, John. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. You guys have some um, some great research, and I know have some great things to say here. So we know that the insider or occupational fraud problem has been on the rise since the advent of the pandemic. We actually have devoted an entire episode to that in the past. Um, but instead, I'd like to start our conversation today by getting a sense of the bad actors that have brought this to the forefront. And Andy, in addition to your qualifications, which are substantial, I should point out that you are the co-author of the aforementioned Report to the Nations, which you guys publish every two years. Andy, what does that report say about the profile of the occupational fraudster? Sure. So, yes, our, our most recent report actually looked at 2,100 cases of real occupational fraud, and it's the 12th in our series of studies. So over the last almost three decades, we've looked at tens of thousands of cases of occupational fraud. Um, which gives us really great insights into that profile that you're asking about. And I think there's some great trends that your listeners might appreciate knowing. Uh, first, I think it's interesting to note that there, the fraudsters are spread all over the organizations. They're in the accounting department, they're in HR, they're in IT, they're in purchasing and sales, they're in the executive suite. So um, there's not really one area that we would say is the most ripe for fraud. Obviously, places where cash is touched, that's an issue. But anywhere that there is uh, employees and there is access to some sort of organizational resources, you can have a fraud perpetrator potentially there. 
Um, but beyond that, so they're spread all over the organization, but there are a few specific trends that I think are worth noting. These are people who typically are well-educated. Um, over 65% of our perpetrators have a college degree or higher. Um, they are not career criminals. Only 6% had a prior criminal record of uh, for anything fraud related. Um, and they tend to be trusted within the organization. So a lot of them have been there, you know, several years or longer within the company, and they hold positions where other people uh, trust them to do their jobs well, um, and they're able to essentially get away with perpetrating and concealing their crime. The interesting thing, though, is that the majority of them, 85% of them, actually display some form of behavioral red flag as part of their scheme. So this is, we ask about this after the fact, that's retrospective, but it's still interesting to note. Um, most of these fraudsters, when looking back, somebody noticed something that didn't seem quite right. And the most common one is living beyond their means. 40% of fraudsters were known to be living beyond their means at the time of their fraud. So there are certain um, behavioral aspects as part of that profile that I think those of us who are on the front lines of the fight against fraud really need to keep in mind that, yes, we should be looking at transactions. Yes, we should be considering opportunity, but also are there other behaviors that we need to be watching as part of identifying potential risks? Okay, interesting. John, I find your background fascinating. I get to write and talk about fraudsters. You actually have talked with them <laughs> as well as investigated them. If we had to put out an APB for the typical occupational fraudster, would there be one? And what would it sound like if there was? Well, it's interesting because like Andy said, it could be almost anybody. I mean, there are a lot of people that fit those uh, characteristics, but it is interesting to talk to people after they've committed the fraud and that was something they were doing even before i came to the acv in 1995 and i just uh picked up uh what they were doing but but the idea was always you know people commit fraud so if you want to understand who you're trying to catch you need to talk to those people and find out well what were they thinking what were the motivations and we're going to talk about uh, some more of that in just a minute. But I guess when I stop and I look at the people that I've done the interviews with, if you had to put them into two groups, the first one was, like Andy said, they were living beyond their means or they had just some deep-seated financial desire or need. So that's the first group that I'm seeing. The people that just, they they want something to the point where they just can't take it anymore they've got to find a way to satisfy this need or they're already in over their head they already did it they bought all the stuff they took vacations they bought the cars and now they're about to lose it all and so the only way to keep this thing going is they're going to have to find some money way to steal from the company the other group that i've seen are just people that for whatever reason are out to take revenge on the company. They feel like they have been mistreated. They're not treated fairly. They were taken advantage of. They just don't like the company. And so they look at fraud as a way to get back and uh, kind of even the score. So those are kind of the, the two groups of fraudsters that I see the most. And and I should tip my hat here to uh, what is well known in, in your particular area of expertise, which is the Cressy Fraud Triangle. Um, it was actually developed by a fraud investigator in the 40s. Um, and the theory was that individuals are motivated to commit fraud when three elements come together. One, some kind of perceived pressure, as you mentioned, some perceived opportunity, 
And three, some way to rationalize the fraud as not being inconsistent with one values. So, John, are there other factors that can motivate occupational fraud? You know, over the years, you know, I've studied this triangle uh, for a long time. And, and people ask, well, does every case have to follow this? And it doesn't. And what we said and what Cressy said, even back in the 40s and 50s, was he went out and he interviewed people and he said, look, these are the things that I kept seeing over and over and over. And it is consistent with what I've seen over the years because I've never met anybody who had been working at the company, as Andy's statistics point out. This isn't something that somebody starts doing the day after they're hired. They've been there for several years, which leads the opportunity to be able to commit some of these uh, schemes. But it wasn't that they came in one day and they're like, you know, gosh, I'm awfully bored. I don't want to sit and answer these emails. I don't want to uh, finish this report. You know what? I think I'll try and steal from the company today. That's I've never seen a case where that happened. There usually has to be some kind of motivating factor. And that's where most often it's some kind of financial need. They want money. They desire it and they become obsessed with that the opportunity part is just well here's a way i can relieve this need because here's an here's a bank account that nobody ever reconciles nobody ever looks at it here's our purchasing department no one ever reviews the documentation nobody ever checks out the vendors we send payments nobody double checks who the payments are going to so you've got this huge hole in internal controls, people uh, separate, there's no separation of duties. And so they're like, you know, I could steal the money and get away with it because nobody is paying attention in this area of the business. But none of these people, like I said, took the job with the idea of, all right, well, I'm gonna work really hard for three or four years and then I'm gonna strike. It's, they were, you know, pretty normal employees up until the point where they decided uh, to make this wrong decision. So they have to start telling themselves, look, I'm not a bad person because, and that's where the rationalizations come in. And they run the gamut. Some of them are just, uh, I had one woman tell me that it was, this was a closely held company. There was one shareholder who owned all the shares, who was the owner of the company. And she was telling me, well, it wasn't his money. I stole from the company, not from him. I'm like, well, you know, if he owns all the shares, then it really is his company. But in her mind, no, he, she wasn't stealing from him. She was stealing from the company. And they, all uh, the excuses come from like, you know, uh, I'm not paid fairly. I didn't get a raise last year. Uh, executives make a lot of money. It's a huge company. They can afford it. They have to be able to sleep at night. And so that's where the rationalizations come in. Okay, interesting. So, Andy, one of the things that I've found in my research, um, and just knowing what Bottom Line has has found in in working with with clients, is that the problem. If I had to say, if 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 it was either detection or defense, it looks like it's in detection because a lot of companies find out after the fact that occupational fraud has been committed. So, what is some of the behavioral evidence that a company should look for? that should alert them to possible occupational fraud? So it's 
2023 and we have more data than we've ever had and we have more smart people looking at that data and trying to find fraud than we ever have and we still do not have that find fraud button right we're still waiting on that invention but for now what we do have is a lot more knowledge of what frauds look like and um a lot more um tools at our disposal to help us look for it and i think you know what it looks like in companies is going to vary based on the company um Every company has its own unique factors internally that may be leading individuals to feel specific pressures. Um, they may have their own opportunities that are sort of festering in different parts of the organization. So I think, you know, knowing the policies and procedures in the company and watching for red flags of somebody kind of toying the line ethically with some of those is always important. But I would say one of the biggest sources of uh, information, not just data, but information that we have that can help us really find those hot spots and potential risks is what our employees are saying. We know that the biggest proportion of occupational frauds are detected by tips. And we know that most of those tips come from employees within the organization. So it's really important that we're not just looking at the transactions. We're not just looking at the data. We're actually listening to those hallmarks of what the culture is, not just overall, but in different parts of the organization, um, taking a look at hotline tips uh, trends in those, listening to concerns that are raised by uh, employees throughout the organization about not just, hey, I think fraud's going on here, but a lot of times we know occupational fraudsters engage in other bad behavior as well. There could be bullying, there could be control issues, there could be performance-related issues. So really keeping an eye out for any of the red flags that uh, employee tips might be bringing to you that show where that pressure, that opportunity, and that rationalization might be meeting within the organization. So, John, when I first started covering this topic, which I guess was two years ago, um, it was all about occupational fraud and theft of finance. Then I started to hear a lot about identity theft, data manipulation, revenge, as you said. What are occupational fraudsters after, and have their targets changed at all over the last couple of years? It only changes where they see there's a there's a, a large amount of money that's free that's open for the taking. I would put it that way. Like for example, with the pandemic, it was just too tempting when the government said, "Hey, just fill out a form and we'll send you money." And so a lot of them turned to that because it was just so easy uh, to get away with. It was much easier than trying to steal maybe from an organization or from a company. So uh, we saw the same thing with the you know 2008 mortgage crisis and mortgage fraud was rampant because banks were in the mode of, hey, we want to lend money. People were getting bonuses for uh, signing up loans. Nobody was really checking the quality of it. So what did they do? Well, they were doing a mortgage fraud and loan fraud, taking out these huge loans and trying to you know, cash out the properties and get the money and go and let the uh, mortgages default. And so wherever there's a hole there and people aren't watching what's going on and they're handing out money, the fraudsters will follow that. But a lot of these things, people think, oh, well, this is you know, like social engineering. You, you see it in the news and people start thinking, oh, well, this is something new. Social engineering has been around forever. It's it's just committed in a different way. Uh, for example, when I was a kid, I used to like to watch uh, Dragnet, the old TV series with uh, Jack Webb. And they did a story or one of the episodes was about uh, fraudulent bank examiners. And they catch a little old lady coming out of the bank 
and say, hey, we're bank examiners. Will you help us? And then the, so the scheme was that she takes the money out and they mark it and put it in an envelope. And then she goes back in and deposit it. And the thing is, they want to see, well, is the teller going to steal it? Well, what they do is they switch the money, the real money that came from the little lady with paper. And so when she goes in, it's deposited, you know, she's been swindled. That's social engineering. The only thing that's different now, and this actually, they had the same scam in Austin about a year ago. They just use email now. They just contact you by email, say, we're bank examiners. We know you do business with this bank and uh, we want you to try and help us catch these thieves by withdrawing this money and then, you know, meeting us. And so it's it, social engineering has been around for a long time. Con schemes are just a form of social engineering. Uh, identity theft is the same way. It's they used to just take out a credit card application, fill it out uh, by hand and, and mail it in. Well, now they can do it uh, online or we see synthetic identity theft where they can create a fake person, but it's all the same types of things. It's just sometimes the technology makes it easier for them to commit it, or they can do it on such a large scale because they can send out, instead of having to send out a fax or a letter, they can send out, you know, hundreds of thousands of emails uh, almost instantaneously. But the schemes are still coming down to they're, they're going to steal something that has value so they're either going to steal money or they're going to steal data. That's because those are the two easiest things to steal and uh, get away with and hide. I mean, most organizations, they have we have a lot of computers, desktops, laptops everywhere. But that's really hard to pack up a bunch of computers at the end of the day and get out the building without somebody noticing. But you can send wire transfers or payments to yourself or uh, to a bank account or send transfer data, upload it to cloud uh, very quickly and easily. So that's why they're attracted to those schemes. So it, it, it's, it's fairly well accepted that the, the remote working has, <laughs> has certainly fueled this rise. But John, there are probably some things that HR can do. There are probably some cultural changes that could be made to stop fraud before it happens. Um, have you seen companies start to turn to those? That's one of the things that we have been uh, talking with our members and, and trying to figure out, well, in this new environment, what can we do to try and help this along? And I do agree that one of the the things that, the, one of the challenges has to do with culture. And the studies show and if you that if you, like working for the organization and you have uh you it's kind of positive reinforcement if i like my job and i like coming in every day and i like what i do and i feel that bond with the company and its in its mission i'm less likely to want to steal because i get that positive reinforcement by being an employee i feel value but if you're only in the office one or two days a week are you really forming those strong bonds anymore? Do you really understand, well, what is the mission and what is the culture? Do you feel connected with the people that you work with? And so I, I'm worried that that disconnect, like the, there's me and then there's, I have these anonymous coworkers that I barely know. And then I have this organization that I just know virtually. Uh, are they going to feel 
less loyalty to the company. And then the other thing is just since that since we do have to access all this information from our houses, we've had to you know lessen the restrictions and some of the the controls that we have on making payments, getting access to financial accounts, getting access to information. So we have a greater opportunity for people to steal. So now we have a disconnected workforce that may feel less bad or less guilty about stealing. And we have more opportunity for because people have greater access and less oversight. Let's uh, let's move on to, to prosecuting. Um, so, Andy, I'd like to quote from your most recent report to the nation's And I quote, once an organization has identified fraud and determined who is responsible, it must decide whether to punish the perpetrator and how. And then you found termination was the most common punishment at 61%. 11% of cases, the perpetrator was permitted or required to resign. And in 12%, the perpetrator already left the company. That assumes a successful investigation. And what are some of the factors in occupational fraud prosecution, I guess? Right. And as we think about prosecution and them moving through to that sort of legal um, pursuit of justice against these perpetrators, you know, our studies have shown the percentage of cases that are going to prosecution is actually going down. Hmm. 58% of cases in our most recent study, but that's been dropping steadily in each of our studies over the last decade, which is really interesting. Looks like a lot more companies are actually pursuing civil litigation. Um, And we know the top reason why they declined to prosecute is actually because they think that their internal discipline is sufficient. So those terminations, those uh, requiring them to resign, a lot of organizations simply allow the perpetrator to no longer work there and think that that's enough of a punishment for them. So that's really interesting. Um, We do know if it goes to prosecution, about two thirds of the perpetrators in our study are getting convicted. Um, So there is a, a, a reasonable success rate there. But I think some of the factors that go into whether or not they decide to pursue that that prosecution in the first place are things like the size of the loss from the uh, scheme itself, the length of the fraud, how long did it go on, how severe was it, how many people were involved, the strength of the evidence, right? We know that we hear from a lot of organizations that they just didn't feel like the case was going to be tight enough for the prosecutor to uh, pick it up and actually pursue it in a court. So that takes uh, part of the consideration there. But I think one of the biggest factors that we need to be willing to talk about is organizations that are essentially willing to go on record as saying this happened to us. And once you go into the legal system, you're going on record. You're saying, hey, we had a fraud at our organization. And so there is some sensitivity there for organizational leaders to do that, which is why they often allow them to simply walk away uh, from the position without any legal action taken. And that actually feeds back into something I mentioned earlier, which is only 6% of the fraudsters in our studies have prior criminal records, if they're not being prosecuted, essentially what's happening is they're being released to go on and defraud another organization another day. I was just reading, somebody sent me a a link to a story. I can't remember uh, what publication it was in about insider fraud in the airline business. So that that led me to ask, Andy, um, are there verticals that are more vulnerable than others to occupational fraud? So when we think about occupational fraud, a lot of times we think of, you know, banks and financial institutions, right? Why do you rob the bank? Because that's where the money is. Um, Famous Willie Sutton uh, quote from a bank robber way back when. Um, And so we often think about insider fraud and insider threats in banks. But the reality is it can affect 
every organization in every single industry of every size in every country. Um, at the ACFE, we have a saying that fraud isn't a financial problem or an accounting problem. It's a human problem. So the reality is any organization that employs humans in some capacity has a risk of fraud because those humans are susceptible to the fraud triangle factors that John mentioned earlier, the pressure, the opportunity, the rationalization. So really, it can, it can happen in the airline industry. It can happen in insurance. It can happen across every possible vertical. Which, of course, I have to pass judgment and say, can ChatGPT be trained to be an occupational fraudster? <laughs> but, but let's not go there. So, John, back to you. <laughs> um, it seems like proactivity is is the way to go. I mean, you have to be proactive here if you're going to make any any kind of headway against occupational fraud. Can you tell us a little bit about the ACFE framework for detecting and fending against this fraud? Yes, we... Uh... You've got to start somewhere. A lot of people we we discovered over the years were like, well, it just seems like such a large problem. I don't know what to do. And they just kind of throw their hands up. But uh, COSO, the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations, some of your readers may be familiar with, but they're standard setting body in the accounting and auditing industry. And so they wanted to do one specifically on trying to develop a fraud risk management program. And so they approached us and we all got together and put our smartest people in a room and came up with kind of a, a five principled framework that companies can follow to kind of start tackling this problem and if you if they want to know more about it it is very it's a good place to start you can go to our website which is acfe.com and then in the search field just put in fraud risk management guide and it'll pop right up. There's a, a free executive summary that tells you a lot of what you need to know. And the I'll sum it up. There's, like I said, five principles, but the two biggest things to take away from, you need to have some kind of a reporting program. Uh, Andy already mentioned that, that when we ask our members, how did you find out about fraud? The most common answer was a tip from somebody. And so you need to have a reporting program where if somebody sees something that they have a way to report it because you can get employees can be your best line of defense. They're out there. They're on the front lines. They see if somebody's not following the rules. There's something that looks strange or weird. Most of them are willing to come forward and say something, but they don't know how. Well, who am I supposed to tell? A lot of people think, well, I have to tell my supervisor, but my supervisor is the one I think that's maybe committing the fraud. So I guess I just, there's nowhere I can go. So you need to explain, well, no, there are other options other than that. Here's how you report it. And then you need to let them know, look, we stand behind our employees. If you come forward and you report something in good faith, then we will stand behind you. And you just, you tell us what you think is wrong and then let us take it from there and see uh, we, if we need to investigate or what we can find out. And the other thing is just fraud risk assessments. You just take each area of the business and you sit down and you look through it and try and figure out what is our risk of fraud and what are some of the things that we might be able to do to help prevent that is that we need to just separate duties or we have more than one person working on this. We don't have anybody double checking it. There are a lot of things that it may be 
if you just stopped and looked at it, you would you would discover some some real vulnerability. So the two biggest things in that framework are just simply the idea of having a method for employees to report what they think might be going wrong or if they have any suspicions and then just looking at the organization and trying to get a handle on well, what are your risk of fraud in each area. So Andy, I have a tough question for you here. Um, maybe even an unfair question, but how do you, how do you measure this? Because if there's, if, if there's nothing to manage, I win, right? Um, it's hard to measure the ROI of something when if you're successful, it doesn't exist. But what are some of the things that companies can look at to start to get there? That is the million dollar question. And I think if we could get a solid answer, um, it might be a catch 22, right? Because then we might also be looking at uh, putting ourselves out of business a little bit. But yes, measuring the ROI of fraud prevention or fraud risk management is something that every organization grapples with. We know that we get that question many, many times a year. Um, I will say there's a few things that I've heard very successful. I think one of the, well, I think one of the most successful selling points for fraud program that I've heard over and over again is, yeah, we got in trouble with the regulators. Now our our management's willing to spend as much as we need to on uh, our anti fraud program, which you don't want to be that organization, right? So how do you convince? leadership to invest in this? How do you prove that the investment is paid off? Um, you know, organizations use things like fraud losses diverted, where they can look at near misses or organizations look at things like um, trends in reporting uh, from their employees are hotline tips going up or down. I think one tool that we have at our disposal actually comes from the report to the nation study where we look at um, 18 different anti-fraud controls. And we look at whether the victim organization, so these are all organizations that had an actual occupational fraud occur. And we look at the losses that occurred at organizations that had different anti-fraud controls in place versus the losses that occurred at organizations that lacked those same controls. And across the board for every single one of those controls, organizations with the, the control in place experienced much, much lower losses than those without the controls. So we can prove that there is value in these controls that may not prevent all fraud from occurring every time, but it's certainly helping organizations detect fraud faster. It's helping them limit their fraud losses. And, um, you know, I, I would like to think optimistically that it is preventing many, many frauds from occurring that would happen otherwise. So, and I would encourage your readers, if any of them have nailed that perfect ROI formula, to please email me because we get this question more than maybe any other. Okay. Me first. Sorry. Email me first. <laughs> <laughs> John, let's finish this episode with you. Um, we're in the middle of a thriving event season. I feel like every time I talk to someone, they just got back from or are just going to an event, which is great. Um, if you could keynote a conference on occupational fraud, what would some of your key themes be? That's a that's a good question. I've never been asked. Uh, I've never been asked it that way. And it's like, well, you're going to be a keynote and you could just say anything you want. Usually they have some kind of a theme that you they want you to go with. They're like, well, what would you be your big message? And so I actually stopped to think and I'm like, you know, the number one thing I would have to say that's that's the top on my list is fraud awareness training. And it goes back to what we were talking about before that you can't the if whether it's internal audit, external audit, management, we can't none of these people can be in every place at every time. But we have employees that are there. If you can explain to them what we want 
you to do, I think most of them are willing to do it. It's like, but no one, I had a quote from a guy who served five years in prison. He stole uh, $9 million from a large financial institution. And he said, you know, I never learned about fraud awareness training until I was in prison. And I thought, well, that's too late. Uh, I, I think that's the problem right there. And I knew, and he said there had to be people that were suspicious of what was going on, but he said, I don't think they had any idea of who to talk to or what to say, or even what some of the red flags are, because you assume well, people know what red flags of fraud, fraud are in their department or their company, but they don't. And so that's fraud awareness training, I think, is you sit people down and explain here are the things to kind of be aware of and be looking around for. And, and if you see something, say something. And then uh, what we talked about before, I would leave with, you know, fraud risk assessments. And this is something that is not as hard to do as it sounds. And that is just have each department, each area of the business stop and think like, you know, are we doing this properly? Oh, I've talked to too many people over the years. It's like, well, why do you do it this way? Well, this is the way I was taught. And we've been doing it this way for 10 years and no one's ever stopped to look like, well, maybe there's a better, more efficient way. And who's minding the store? Every Is anybody checking this, double checking it? Uh, another guy did an interview with stole $21 million from a large financial institution. It was all through wire transfers. No one, he'd been there a long time. He simply would turn in the wire transfer and they would, whatever it said they would do. If it said wire money from this account, to the, and they were all this money is being wired to his personal checking account. Nobody ever asked him a single question about over $20 million worth of wire transfers. It was simply, they had no procedure to ask for backup, double check it, what's it for, or ask any questions. And so that's the type of thing that we need to, to stop. We need to have, that's how you, when you do a fraud risk assessment, you ask people, when you send a wire, what questions do you ask? Do you look at the backup? Oh no, well, I, they've been there a long time. If they give me the wire, I just put the, <laughs> The count numbers in it hit a button, it's gone. And that you can figure out by just asking questions about how people uh, do their jobs. And then uh, just knowing that people will report it if you tell them and explain to them what the rules are, how to do it, and that they'll uh, back you up. And while we're talking about questions that I would die to know the answer for, I'll throw you my favorite question uh, that I've never figured out. Years ago, we, when I was manning, we had kind of an information hotline and people to ask questions. My favorite question was, how much fraud goes undetected? And like, that's a good question. And, and I haven't figured that one out yet. But if any of you want to take that challenge up along with the other the ROI question, go right ahead. Hey, that's a wrap for this episode of the Payments Podcast. I would like to thank my guests. You guys have been great from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, Andy McNeil, VP of Education. Thank you for the education. Thanks so much, John. And John Gill, president of the ACFE. Thank you for doing all, the, all that you do to help keep this bottled up. And uh, thanks for the good work. Thank you very much. We've enjoyed it. All right. Thanks to you both. Please join us next time on the Payments Podcast. Until then, spread the good word. And just a reminder that we're on the Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud podcast platforms.
Performance Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.